0: Hello, welcome to another Pharmacy Practice podcast. Got, uh, got a gentleman who is very involved in pharmacy automation and pharmacy robotics. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, hi, Jonathan. Um, I'm, I'm Gary Paragpiri. I'm the co-founder of Hub & Spoke Innovations, and uh, we sell the Pharmacelf24 prescription collection robot across the UK. I think I think some of your some of your listeners might remember me from I think from a previous role when I was editor of C and D, which now seems like a long time ago.
0: What's what's your journey been in pharmacy? I mean, are you a pharmacist yourself, for example?
1: He, he, well, yes. Yeah, so I'll give you a bit of background. So Hub and Spoke is myself and my business partner Richard, and we 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 met as uh, undergraduate studying pharmacy back at Chelsea, as it was known back then, back in the late eighties. And uh, graduated in I think I did my pre in '89, and um, for, I think I, I practiced. I was a community pharmacist for about 12, 13, 14 years. I kind of managed branches uh, local for quite a long time, and, but mostly working around the kind of uh, the kind of M4 corridor of uh, uh, the kind of Thames Valley area for pharmacies, and. Um, uh i it was interesting I, I had an opportunity to buy a pharmacy and it was a newly it was a newly built pharmacy in in a doctor's car park and uh and my wife who's also a pharmacist we were at university together we went to look at it and um the, the I, I remember the goodwill being a, a, a quite high at the time and we were thinking about how we're going to raise money but i also we just had our first just had our first child born and i kind of knew that if i went in, if i went in and bought that pharmacy i would be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I would because I'm, I'm I get kind of quite committed into things, and I didn't want to miss out on 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 the kids. So I, I said I said we turned turned the opportunity down, do and then I on? thought well, what do I? I did I did I did, for, I did for a bit because I, I really you know I you know I enjoyed pharmacy, I enjoyed the job, you know I really liked the kind of interaction with patients. That was that was the kind of the great part. I didn't the fact that you can do it. In a business that, that you know that, that you run for yourself, just added to the appeal. But but I also you know I wanted to spend time with my kids. my my, my father had some businesses when when I was younger, and uh, he ran them for about eight years, and I didn't see him for eight years, and I that was kind of between the ages of me being twelve and twenty. And uh, you know I'm now in my fifties, and I still feel like I missed out eight years on my dad and that that's you know you, you you see these in families that run businesses you know the, the parents work hard because they want to build that business for their family but there's that it does affect your kind of work-life balance mm-hmm.
0: i know the feeling i, I I've, I've gone from sort of while well, running other people's businesses really um working for boots and so on and so forth and, and elsewhere in community and um working for myself working from home it really it's, it's really not all about the money being here is you're absolutely right being here is really valuable actually um it is and then um I, and then i saw an advert on the back
1: of the cnd for a reporter and i thought i could do that that sounds interesting and <laughs> and i went along to uh the interview with patrick patrick grice was the editor there been the editor for kind of um a good kind of 10 12 years at that point and um for some reason they liked me they offered me a job and it was it was it was it was a difficult decision because there was quite a big pay drop from you know a pharmacy salary to uh, effectively I was a junior reporter but but the I just felt like the opportunity was too good to turn down because of what it would allow me to do and and, and seeing pharmacy from a different perspective and I said yes and uh, that was back in 2001, 2002, and uh, and, and I and I probably one of the best decisions I, I ever made. I think.
0: Mhm. And what's uh, what was your experience working at C and D there? So it's not a kiss and tell interview, this. But, no, okay. no. I, look, what did you, what honest, did you learn? I what were your I
1: mean, this, it, it was it C and D was it was a very different um, different publication back then. It was you know pretty much staffed by pharmacists who had all done the day job, who had all, all worked pretty much in, in community pharmacy and uh, so people who'd done the day job knew what the issues were and that they, they were writing about it. and that was kind of the strength of C&D. And, but, but there was also, um, so I kind of, I, I was, I also all at that time kind of felt that there was more that we could, we could do uh, sometimes Sometimes there's a feeling that uh, things can be a bit cosy between uh, uh, the the magazine and you know the, the organisations which which you report which you kind of report from and uh, and it was interesting because a couple of years in I got the chance to go on an external editorial diploma and I ended up sitting with I think there was um there was like the the guy. It was the editor or deputy editor of, uh, I think it was NUTS magazine. There was What Car magazine, Practical Caravanning. There were were lots of other consumer titles. And consumer titles are sold on, um, uh, you know, newsstands. They have to work really hard to capture the attention of the reader. So they pick a copy up and hand over their money. And uh, it was really interesting hearing, uh, you know, what they do to kind of drive that engagement with their reader. And it kind of, that kind of sat with me, um, that sat with me uh, uh, kind of percolating and, uh, but, you know, as a reporter, it wasn't really in my power to do anything about it. But um, opportunities kept kind of coming up at C&D. They kept saying, do you want to do this? I kept saying, yes. And, and, uh, and I kind of ended up being editor five years later. It was quite a quick transition because editors at C&D tend to be there for, decades, you know, it was that kind of uh, publication and uh, suddenly there I am as editor and I've got all these ideas that, that, that I want to do and, uh, uh, and and so we then set about changing the focus of C&D, becoming the uh, the magazine that championed the interest of its readers and we, you know, we introduced a new strap line. Uh, informing supporting and championing just to make it quite clear this is what we were going to do and I and hopefully um, I'd like to think readers will look back at that part time and thought well actually CV was you know we ran investigations uh, we ran campaigns uh, we you know we won awards for our journalism you know we were regularly beating some of the national newspapers for the kind of things that we were doing and um, it was just a fantastically enjoyable experience mostly because we got such strong levels of engagement and feedback from our readers so you know it's nice to know that what you're doing is kind of the right thing
0: and you were you were there without without sort of dwelling on it you were there the interesting bit for me was you were there when uh digitization started to happen weren't you (laughs) yeah what,
1: what,
0: what in your view was the the effect on the publishing market of digitization
1: well when i first started we had um Effectively, we would just copy the weekly magazine, and then maybe a week or you know, or, or two weeks later, we'd put the whole issue online. And but there was nothing to differentiate uh, what we did online and what we did in print. It was always print first. And um, uh, we then and then and then actually, you started to see what. Other publications are doing online mostly you know the kind of the national newspapers the way they were they were shifting wholesale online and the way they were doing things online that they couldn't do in print you know the fact that you could get immediate engagement with readers the fact that you could post video and you know readers could upload content and pictures and, and, and respond to things and then we you know we started to ask the question can we do this? Can we do this in pharmacy? You know, how would it, how would it work? You know, are, are, are pharmacists, you know, are are we kind of the kind of profession that doesn't, that doesn't discuss things in public? You know, are we the kind of profession that, you know, likes to have stuff done face to face in closed meetings because we're, you know, because we're professionals. And I actually, I think we found quite to our surprise, people loved being able to engage with, uh, uh you know with with the CND team kind of online and and you know we 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 think well we're going to do an investigation about xyz or a campaign about it but you know what what why don't we ask our readers first is this is this what you want are these the questions we should be asking and i think hopefully i'd like to think they they valued that opportunity to um uh to have a say in what we were doing so that then, then we were able to produce something that was it was more about what our readers wanted so yeah. those were the kind of early lessons that we learned and that then shaped everything that we we did as, you know during my time at c and D, I I used to have this um uh, I remember when I when I first became editor my first week I made up some posters and I said and the posters said what's in it for the reader and I stuck it up on the walls and and so essentially I wanted the team to see that if you're doing something You've got to ask yourself what's in it for the reader and if 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 it didn't if it didn't offer anything back to the reader then those are the things we should stop doing and uh, I've got to admit it was it was a hard it was a hard sell to kind of change the mindset um uh, of of you know some of the team back then you know but a lot of the people there had been there quite a long time they were more experienced than me they didn't like some young upstart coming in telling them you know we should start doing things in a different way it, you know and lots of there'll be pharmacists out there who manage pharmacies who who kind of uh, i would imagine come across the same management changes um you know but you stick with a plan you persevere you encourage you support your team to kind of make those changes and hopefully eventually they kind of buy into to, to where you're going and what you're trying to do
0: yeah i mean it's obviously editing my own magazine um or publication whatever you call it um i've got an interest haven't i but I, i'm i'm one one question i was wanting to ask you was do you think the standard and this is not about C&D, this is just a general question really gary so do you think or what what has the impact of digitization been on the nature of the editorial that's now produced compared to back when we were you know, putting together um, hard copies of uh, magazines and so on. Uh, the,
1: the, I guess there's there's a couple of there's a couple of things. So if you if you're producing a weekly magazine, you've got you have time on your side. You know, you've only got one you've only got one uh, deadline per week when you've going to submit everything to the printers to get it printed on that paper to get it posted out on time. You've got you've got time to um, uh, to plan to uh, to develop to shape something and you know what you do something then you can sleep on it look at it the following day and refine it polish it make it better with with uh, with online there is there is an endless amount of pages available that you need to fill and uh, the deadlines come they come thick and fast they don't just come daily you will probably have several de- several deadlines during that day that you could hit certain number of stories that are going to be online. And and I guess that can that, that can put pressure that can put pressure on on, on your ability to kind of uh, how should I put it? You know, give the give provide all of the information that your readers need. And and the way that it works online is that you know you'll immediately get something up and then you'll go away and then follow that up and then you've got more information and then you, then you write a follow-on piece. So um, I suppose over time, you will build up that in-depth picture, but that's not one continuous story. They're pieces that follow on to each other. So one of the things that the internet doesn't do is allow readers to follow that trail of that story as it develops, you constantly have to find the next version. It's the way that it's linked through. Um, you know, it's in, in print. You know, you can have uh, you can quite easily have you know two, three thousand, three, four thousand word kind of features where it's just beautifully presented. You can follow it through. You know, you can have um, uh, uh, it's a pleasure to read. But you, you know, no one reads four thousand words online. No one reads a thousand words online. It's uh, it's much more short form, and yeah. it's it's you know how do you, how do you make it easy for the reader to follow something as it develops and becomes a much bigger, more valuable piece?
0: Well, you mentioned. I mean, my view on that is is <laughs> it was a pointed question because I do have quite a firm view on it. Um, <laughs> You, you know, unfortunately, in publishing online, you're 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 rewarded for being a complete extremist. So if I, you know, if I put up a headline like uh, Gary in fraud scandal jailed pharmacist or something, you know, we, we, that would fly. I mean, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it?
1: <laughs> well, I don't, um, I don't know. Not, not if it's got Gary <laughs> in it, no. But but I know what you mean. It's it's about capturing, capturing immediate attention. But I also think. I mean, look. The the internet isn't new anymore. The internet isn't new. It's kind of. uh, Do you remember when it was new? We would just surf endlessly because it was really exciting. Let's jump from this to that. Let's get fine. You know, there was that. I remember there was that really famous page, the million dollar page. And some some kid had uh, found a page where they got a million company logos uh, and put them on this one page. And he got each company to give him a dollar for sponsorship. It was just really interesting, funny things happening all the time. But the internet is kind of almost mature. I mean, it's not really mature, but it, it feels mature, and we are used to being online and surfing. And I wonder whether there is the, you get to the point where people aren't just going to click on clickbait because you know what, it's not rewarding enough. You get a you get the quick interesting headline, you read it, but actually you wanted more. You wanted something in depth. You wanted something that gave you more value. And no, wow. you know. And, and you do you, see things like, you know, media the the uh, you know long form journalism starting to reappear.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and that's part of I mean that's part of where I'm going with the with the podcast, isn't it? It's the long form interview. I mean, politicians back in the eighties used to give give loads of long form interviews and now that just doesn't happen now. It's all just sort of sound bites on Twitter and um and so on and so forth. And 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 that leads to a bit of a, a splash on the website, and then and as you say, the story develops and and the facts go from being out of focus to 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 being sort of in context. And I, I guess I guess from my perspective in a pharmacy, I I resist that or I try to resist that temptation, you know, um, and think of other ways to to engage readers and um, and so on. It's it's not all about the hits for me. Um, <coughs> no but and i think and i think you know look at it, look at it what you're looking at what you're doing
1: jonathan you know if you're going to build a long term relationship with your readers that you have to give them something of you know long term value it's you know it, it takes time to build kind of trust and engagement and it has to be through providing stuff of value you know something that you know because as you know as a profession we you know we Although I'm no longer i no longer registered as as a pharmacist, came off the register like, uh, two or three years ago when I when I kind of left CND. But you know, we all all health professionals, it is about reflecting on stuff that we've done, considering it, and and that's that's not that those aren't short term actions. You know, you need a depth of information to be able to evaluate stuff and make decisions going forward on it.
0: Absolutely right. So that's enough about boring publishing and all the rest. Let's let's get on to um, technology and um, the future and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, the spirit of uh, you, you mentioned something quite interesting to be following following the money. Um, I should declare that you've given I me, mean, feel free to give me some money, but you you've given me no money for this uh, for this interview, and it is uh, that's intentional because I I want to ask you genuine questions about your technological solution and to be honest guy, the impact that's going to have on community pharmacy so tell me a bit about what what your product is and how it fits and how it works just sort of what's your elevator okay. pitch I think you call it so, these days. So,
1: so the PharmaSoft 24 uh, in essence automates the handing out of prescriptions once they're dispensed uh, it's just a tool that replaces a, a manual process much like uh, you know the keyboard replaces the pen, your PMR system replaces the typewriter, it just replaces the handing out process. Um, and, but, but actually, when you start looking at it, it, it can have quite a remarkable effect on the overall workflow. So if we take an average pharmacy dispensing, I think the average pharmacy does somewhere around seven to 8,000 items on average. I know there's quite a few that do less, but there's quite a few kind of prescription factories that do a lot more. Um, and you know currently you know prescriptions come in you 've got acutes that walk in and you 've got a wadge of repeats that come in for the surgery and as once they 're dispensed, you know the, the natural end of that process is either to hand them to a patient over the counter or you turn around and you stack them on a shelf behind you and you can walk into any pharmacy and there will be literally hundreds of bags stacked on shelves and uh, and you know. And you've got no idea when that patient comes. But there's no audit trail for when that patient comes back, when they collected. What, you know, um, uh, and 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 what the machine does effectively automates that and provides a kind of audit trail of the collection. So the way that it would work is, you know, you've got a prescription for for you know Joe Blogs, One Acacia Avenue or whatever. You would you would bag him up. You do a kind of barcode label to identify that bag because all that machine needs to know is. Who does this bag belong to, and what's their contact details? Someone takes it over to the machine. They scan the barcode, they enter it onto the screen. Whether the person's going to make a payment or not, because the pharmacist has a credit card terminal which can take payments, and you put it into a box, small, medium, or large. Press OK. At that point, the pharmacist puts the bag away, sends Mister Mister Blogs a text saying your prescription's ready for collection gives them a unique pin number for that collection, much like a pin number for your, uh, you know, when you use a cash machine. Tells them how long they have to collect and um, tells them if they've got a payment to make. And that whole loading and uh, the collection when Mr. Smith comes back, when Mr. Bloggs comes back and punches the number is all recorded. So you have a kind of full audit trail. But the interesting way is if you you turn around and look at it not from, not from the pharmacy's perspective but look at it from the patient's perspective Um, and let's take let's take in England for example because only because you've got EPS there so uh, as a patient I'm on a regular repeat but I've got a stable condition and I am on a stable set of medications and I'm really comfortable with with uh, uh, with managing my condition you know as it is and I can uh, nominate a pharmacy to receive my prescription via by EPS the prescription comes along and as a patient I can carry on with my normal normal day-to-day life I go to work I pick up the kids so I look after my parents whatever it is that I do and the script comes into the pharmacy uh, electronically they dispense they put it in the machine and amazing I get a text to say it's it's ready and I can come and collect when it's convenient for me so I no longer have to go into a pharmacy I no longer have to join a queue. I no longer have to wait till I get to the counter to find out whether my script is ready or even whether it's been dispensed. It's just, it makes it really convenient. So actually, that's a fantastic level of convenience that I get from that pharmacy. And uh, you know what, it it increases my level of engagement with that pharmacy. So now, if that pharmacy were to say to me, um, uh, look, I know that we're not gonna see you very often because you're collecting from the machine, actually, all I ask in return is that you know once a year you come in and we'll do a free medicines use review with you for example as a patient I'd say that's great when can I book an appointment so suddenly I'm engaging with the pharmacy when it's convenient for me and it, it increases that strength of that relationship between those two parties
0: so do you think the do you think the pharmaceutical care delivered to patients that collect from these machines is better worse or just the same as the traditional model
1: the machine doesn't stop you from doing anything. It doesn't stop you from talking to your patients. It doesn't stop you from having a chat with them, engaging, consulting, sitting down with them. It simply automates the handout. So currently, look, tell me, you know, you can. There are there are plenty of pharmacies that are, you know, churning out two, three, four hundred items a day. How many consultations happen every time that bag is handed out? You know, if if, if we're honest. Yeah. not not a lot but actually actually not every patient needs a consultation so that, you know we need to we need to recognize that not every patient is the same so you know if you're on a on a stable medication and stable condition and um, you're happy managing your two or three meds then maybe I only need to speak to you once every six months um, or if there's a material change and that's communicated to the patient that you know after six months, if you're collecting from the machine, if I haven't seen you, come in and see me and see if we've got any questions, or let's book, it, let's book in a review. But, and then what that allows, what that does is it frees up, it frees up your staff to focus on those people who genuinely need the extra help. The people that are likely, they've got unstable conditions or can't manage their, their meds very well, the people that are likely to end up you know, uh, in secondary care, in, in, in a hospital, Taking up valuable, um, you know, valuable resources. Those, those are the, those are the patients that would really, I think, um, benefit from uh, the kind of clinical input of the pharmacy team. And, you know, if, if you look at if you if you've been involved in pharmacy like I have for the last kind of thirty years, there is a constant pressure for pharmacists to do everything. You know, manage ever increasing dispensing workloads, deliver ever more clinical services, transition to providing more patient Patient, patient-centered services. But you know what? You can't do all of that, mainly because no one's paying you to do all of that. So you have to find a way of freeing freeing yourself from some of the manual workloads to be able to deliver some of the things that the government is kind of expecting us to do. And, 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 and actually some of the stuff that patients need us to do um, mm-hmm. uh, because we can't do everything with the resources that, that we currently have.
0: Yeah, definitely, and it's it's certainly it feels like a, a you know a solution that fits with the change in market, doesn't it? And and I mean the the supply of 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 many other sort of non drugs, so consumer goods is is largely now automated, isn't it? And I mean it's the, it's it's no surprise it's the way things are going, Gary. Right. Um, I'm just I'm just fascinated to. Uh, uh, I mean, I'll give you. I mean a, a, a couple a couple, one, one one of our customers they
1: they. They used to get um their repeats. Of, I think they were doing I think they were doing around ten thousand items a month. I can't remember exactly. It was, a, it was a kind of that sort of figure. They'd get their repeats at midday and they they'd finish up at five, you know. And I suspect this is a kind of fairly common scenario in most pharmacies. And they put a pharmacist in and they noticed a few months down the line, once they kind of got used to it, they'd get their repeats at midday, but suddenly they were finishing at two. And that was because. They weren't being interrupted, uh, you know, 50, 60 times a day, where people were coming to say, "Can I, collect, you know, where, where's my prescription?" So someone would have to stop what they were doing, go over to the shelf, try and find their bag, hand it over, deal with any query, take any money, um, and but they, they saved three hours a day, and then those staff were, were redeployed into another service that pharmacy was running. So overall, the business um, was able to provide a higher level of service to its patients. And um, in the end, they ended up attracting even more patients because of of what they were able to do compared to previous the service
0: was better. Mm. I think that that has always been a real, like, I found that really confusing working in community pharmacy. Anywhere I've worked, quite rightly so, the pharmacist should be out the front, right? And talking to patients and, you know, delivering pharmaceutical care and all the rest of it, right? But... I've always from a from a like a risk management point of view which is a bit dull i know but um i've always been a bit nervous about that because you're putting you know tactically you're putting your most important person in the most distracting position um <laughs> you know yeah and i remember and i mean folk listening will know like various companies had various initiatives to to plan for the pharmacist to basically be outside the front Door of the shop, herding people in, you know, um, not quite, but you, you get my point. Certainly on the front counter, anyway, and um, and and also this face to face dispensing as well. I've never, I personally, never been a big fan of that. Some people like it, I know, and I just I just didn't. I just find it really distracting. But but that is that is a big sort of, to be honest, selling point that I hadn't thought of. Um, it's, uh, it's-
1: I think I think you know we have got to recognise it's not just the pharmacist that works in, in you know in a pharmacy. Yeah, there's, a true, true. Team, there's a team of people, and if if you want to make the most of them, then you should focus on the bit that they can do really well. So you'll uh, you'll have your 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 counter team that are able to do kind of you know basic triage. You've got your uh, um, uh, dispensing. You know you've got your registered technicians that can that can do the mechanical part of the dispensing. But, you know, if, if, uh, if a patient comes in and they've got a problem with a side effect of their medication or they don't understand why they've been prescribed something or there's a possible interaction with something, that's the, that's the pharmacist's, you know, that's, that's their opportunity to be able to kind of convey um, uh, some, you know, clarity, some, uh, some, some clear information about what's happening to that patient so they better understand what's going on and understand how to deal with it. Whether it's maybe they're not taking the medication at the right time of the day, whether they need to go back and get, you know, something changed for something else, or the fact that, you know, they know that this side effect is fairly common but it wears off after a few days. So persevere and don't give up and, and otherwise because you know it could have an impact on the condition that you're trying to treat. And that and that's what we need to free pharmacies up to. And, and actually actually there's more than that, you know, the you know i i can remember when it seems like ages ago that uh the ability for pharmacists to prescribe you know came in but there's been no real development en masse about giving pharmacists the the, the you know the, the prescribing budgets to allow
0: uh, to no, allow that no, to hang on hang on gary i need to i i sort of not correct you but uh in certain opinion there i think there have been moves to encourage independent prescribing in Scotland, Wales, and England, it just hasn't been in community pharmacy.
1: Yes, fair enough. But the, you know, there are more community pharmacies. That that is the primary access point for the vast majority of the population. And uh, you know, it, it always seems to be that um, uh, it's not community pharmacies that get that uh, get the funding to make that happen.
0: Mm-hmm. I think I mean I think there's an there's an honest pro- conversation to have there though about so taking the taking it off a wee bit about what the value proposition in community pharmacy is you know um I think traditionally it's been that we have delivered you know good value for money in 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 our position in the supply chain and we've you know we do add significant value in terms of pharmaceutical care but you know if you've got a g you know you dissect that model and and you swap the pharmaceutical care bit for a gp pharmacist and you swap the supply function for pharmacy to you or echo then you've got a you know you've got a different model so i um i'm i'm interested and, and uh, well, I, I, it's interesting you, know, you I, pick up
1: on, or you pick up on things like pharmacy to you and echo so you know if, if we were going to invent pharmacy today as a as a profession and as, as a means of supplying kind of you know dispensing medication we wouldn't do it the way that we the labor-intensive way that, that we do it now yeah. um, not with the technology that exists and, and you're starting we you know we are rapidly seeing different supply models emerge so over the last 10 years you know we've had we've had the rise of, of internet pharmacies you know pharmacy to you who whether you like them or not they they dispense what is it close to half a million items a month and you've got to ask yourself why do literally tens of thousands of patients send their scripts every month to to pharmacy to you they clearly value that supply model because it's convenient and it fits into their their lifestyle but you know now now the kind of you're starting to see the Changing of pharmacy services with uh, the development of things like apps and particularly with EPS You know, you've got you've got echo. You know, you've got well with their app. There's there's a there's a health era There's there's, there's quite a few of these available, you know as a patient I Can and, and you know, and this is compounded with many many of the kind of larger players developing central hub and spoke hub and spoke models uh, so you know as a patient I can uh, I pull out the uh, the phone in my pocket and i can order order my repeat prescription through an app whichever one it might be the information is sent um, uh, to the gp surgery <coughs> the the prescription is um, produced electronically and whizzed uh, electronically down the line via eps to the pharmacy the pharmacy receives it and uh you know the pharmacy can then whizz that electronically to its own central central hub where it's dispensed in a big dispensing robot overnight, and at that point, that can either be posted back to the patient if that's how they want it. It can be sent back to the pharmacy because the patient might want to collect it there and have a chat with uh, with the pharmacy team, or it can be, you know, put into a collection point, um, and the patient can come and collect when it's convenient for them because they find that more convenient than than waiting for something to arrive in the post, and they know they can just, you know, punch in a number. Collect and go so the model is transforming and if we're honest you know the these the news the new kind of models arising aren't going to disappear tomorrow they are I think they are only going to grow in um, in size and scope because it seems to be what patients expect they live in a society where we sh- our views are shaped by the way Amazon Amazon serves us you know you, you want to buy something in your lunch hour you can order it Amazon will, you know next day delivery you go home, you missed yesterday's TV, you can catch up on the iPlayer, you go to the supermarket and there's a queue, you stop off at the self-scan thing and, and check out yourself. There is an expectation that 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 uh, the businesses and companies we engage with have a level of automation that, that allows us to personalize the way that we want to use use their services. And, and and healthcare is no exception. It's you know, people don't separate separate their shopping habits from their kind of you know the way that acts as healthcare they expect the same level of convenience whatever they do
0: yeah I mean I think this stuff, the stuff the big thing is this stuff is good until things go wrong and then or people want um, you know my experience working with patients in various settings is that lots of people just want reassurance and you, it's kind of hard to do that through the post you know
1: it is and then that's and that's where that's where um, kind of go back to the point that's that's where the in you know the, the pharmacy team come in because you know you know you know if you you know your patients and you know which ones are comfortable getting it in the post collecting a collection point and which ones need to speak to you every week because you know because you know your patients well you know if you work in a pharmacy and you're there for any length of time and you build you tend to build a rapport with your with your patients um, uh, and you know you, you, quite often uh, you know you know about them their lives their families that you know the, the, their condition the way it imp- impacts them on, on them and um, you know you, you know you they, they can't they can't be a, a pharmacist out there who's worked uh, for some time in a pharmacy who, who doesn't know you know which patients um, they need to spend the extra time with it's just it's part of the job I don't think I don't think it's always recognized I don't think it's always recognized how much of a uh, uh, how strong that relationship um, is, and I don't think you know, necessarily always get the, uh, the recognition about the value of that relationship, but it, but it definitely happens.
0: Well, that's what I'm I mean. talking about. It's a it's a value proposition, you know, and, I, and I, I think a lot of a lot of where we've gone wrong in community is we haven't recorded those conversations. Um, that's the great great travesty of what what we've done for years, you know, so many. Um, Great interventions, life-saving interventions on a daily basis are just sort of swept away like smoke in the air you know because we don't write them down. You, you move yourself your practice into general practice or hospital pharmacy practice and and you record absolutely everything. Um, I, I, I do think it's, I, I, I think it's kind of unfair also
1: to say we don't record everything and it's okay. not because it's not because people don't want to record, but if you're working in a pharmacy and you're dispensing three, four, five hundred items a day there isn't time to go to the loo let alone take a bite of your sandwich or record every single one of those interactions. The technology doesn't exist you know in reality there should be a way of you know uh, every interaction um, you know you can scan a barcode, the patient details are downloaded and there should be a a quick way you know of entering some information whether it's through uh, a voice recording, which is immediately transcribed into text by the software, none of this stuff exists. Well, it, it, it hasn't existed up until now. And so, to say that pharmacists don't record, it's, it's because they haven't had, haven't had the technology, uh, the infrastructure to allow them to do that. Because I think, I think if if if, if, if tech makes if, if there's some tech available that makes it easy, we'll use it. But if it doesn't yeah. exist, you know, I mean. You know I, I when I first when I first started as a, as a uh, when I was an undergraduate we we had typewriters in um, back in the kind of mid 80s at the at the dispensary at Chelsea College in the School of Pharmacy there and I remember like uh, coming out and doing my pre-reg or my um, and, and and the place where I did a pre-reg I just just bought uh, a brand new link PMR system and it was like everyone thought wow this is amazing but but you know what the the while there've been some develops in, developments in PMR since the late late 80s, you know as a whole, you know most pharmacies still use them as as labelers and orderers, you know ordering systems. We don't we don't we don't analyze the data that we hold within it. You know how how, how many PMRs can you go into? I, I might be wrong because I haven't this in a long time. But you you you're probably more up to date than me, but you know can you go in and say well look can I break down my 8,000 patients I've got on here into those with heart disease, those that have uh, diabetes, or you know, those that are suffering from condition X, Y, Z, so that I can then identify them, look at the way that, um, how often they come into my pharmacy, the kind of medications they're on, and maybe I can provide, maybe, maybe the data will tell me that there's some sort of tailored service that I could be providing to them and they would benefit from it, and then I could take that Take that suggestion and go and speak to my local GP practice and see whether there's something together we could do for that group because we're, you know they're missing out on it. We don't. We don't.
0: And, and, and there's, we don't there's, there's, there's there's in my view, Gary, how the how the model and and how the position of community pharmacy has has been for years. We're we're always going to the GP asking permission, you know. And and I think I think it, it's not. This is not a tech discussion. I think it's around it is around the lack of collective and this is probably controversial but it's around the the lack of collective insight or foresight to record and develop our value proposition clinically and business-wise probably over time and and the result of that is where we find ourselves today so you know we didn't have a strong lobby back when the at the inception of the NHS um we we were very much supply function then and and we, we spring, bring it forward to today and, and suddenly we're being drafted into general practice as prescribers. Now, that's good, but unfortunately, community still on the outside. The GPs have got all the data, they've got all the patient information, um, and they have fought hard uh, or lobbied hard over the years to, to, to keep a hold of that because they know how valuable that is for their profession. Um, the old cliche is really true, you know, knowledge is power in that space. But, but, but. Um, but we do. But so, so what, what, have- what, would have, what well, what would have been? I was just going to finish. What would have been really good over the years is if we had further developed our, um, I hate the word clinical, but our patient-facing role, and you know, all those times you've counseled someone or on a on, you know, um, I don't know, calcium channel blockers might swell your ankles, or ACE inhibitor might give you a cough. You know, if we'd written that down. And recorded that, then then um, I might have made a difference. But, but that's just that's just my view.
1: Years ago, when I, when I was when I was a reporter at CND, I remember going to some conference, and I think I think that I think the person's name was Professor Linda Strand. I, I, I might be wrong, but I think it was Professor Linda Strand, and, and she was giving this um, presentation on the data that pharmacies hold, and uh, you know because effectively the dispensing data we have follows on directly from the prescribing data that the prescriber has um, the only thing that you don't know is the diagnosis so you know someone is diagnosed with condition X and the, they are prescribed drugs you know ABC and then you have a record of the people who are prescribed ABC but the fact is, you know, that, that patient will come to you for the next five years, and you know what? You would have had dozens of interactions with them. The chances are you probably know but at some point you've had a conversation. You know what that diagnosis is. So there is a wealth of information that's held within that PMR system. You know, you, you know, uh, you know, you know, kind of what what they were diagnosed with. You kind of know, you know, you know, you know for definite what they were treated with, and you know how that treatment has changed. In reaction to the way that that person's condition has either developed or stabilised or, or whatever, so there is a wealth of information, but there's, there's very, it's very hard to take that in, that data out and turn it into some sort of actionable event that says you can now maybe go and go back to the patient and provide this service or talk to them about this. It's quite hard to do that from that data. It's all it's not it's not very it's not very easy to extract. And uh, put in a way, put in a way to help you make a, a decision about what you might do next. So I, I, I think we do have data. We just the tech doesn't help us to you, you know, to turn it into a usable form. Mm-hmm.
0: So where where do you see um change tag? Where do you see the like? Tell me what your typical community pharmacy will look like in fifteen years. To you.
1: Wow. Uh, I, I could say it will look exactly the same as it does now. Um, I kind of hope I kind of hope that it doesn't because if it looks the same as now, then um, you could say that you know uh, health departments have failed to take advantage of the benefits of um, uh, what community farms can do. I, I wonder whether as as um, the pace of adoption of new technology accelerates, there will be uh, um, a separation between supply, which in effect is a manual process, and um, separate that from the kind of clinical input from the farm pharma- from the pharmacy team. So. If we want want our teams to be uh, playing a far greater role in uh, managing our ever aging population and helping them uh, manage ever more advanced medications, then I guess we are going to have to kind of free them up from that supply side role. Now, the argument goes that you need that supply side role to build a population you know a customer database so you can then provide that clinical input on top so if if pharmacy, if, if bricks and mortar pharmacies still exist in 20 30 years time then you know they'll I'd imagine they'll be much larger with a much larger kind of uh, level of population reg- registered to use that pharmacy and you know the supply could may well be automated it may be outsourced it may be done on a on a hub and spoke model but actually, the pharmacy team then practices much like a, a GP team practices. There is it, it's more of a practice rather than a shop, providing those clinical services um, on that site to that dedicated uh, database of patients that are registered there. That's one way of looking at it. I guess the other way is that um, the supply is completely done remotely, and there is no link between. Uh, the supply and uh, and the pharmacies providing that clinical input. You know, pharmacists maybe have specialized into different areas, much like the way you see other professionals. Who, you know, not every nurse is the same. Nurses can specialize in, in dozens of different fields, and maybe you start to see that level of diversification. Diversification, and you know, maybe pharmacists hold individual contracts for providing those health services to particular groups of patients and the supply, the supply function, the contract is held by companies that, you know, provides supply at a scale at more efficient prices. It could go either way. And ultimately, Hmm. ultimately, it all depends on, uh, the, the trouble is, you know, pharmacy, it's very difficult for pharmacy to shape its own destiny because we are, we are paid by one person you know the NHS decides what it's going to pay us and what it's going to pay us for so it's the the only way we can influence that is by is by sharing sharing to the powers to be you know what what are what where our expertise lies where we want to develop it and hope that they buy into that because they can see mm. the benefits for the taxpayers who provide the money for the NHS to buy into the pharmacy services in the first place um, but you know what, you know, you, you look, uh, I, I, was, I was at C&D for 16, 17 years and every, you know, there was, there was constant talk about this is the sort of thing that pharmacies can do. But there were, there were I lost count of the numbers of kind of pilots and trials where services were, were tested and there were benefits that were shown. But they were very rarely taken up or developed or integrated into something or, or, or on a bigger scale and you know that that's driven from above really that's driven by the powers that be that, that pay for these services and commission these services and it's there's a whole range of factors as to why it doesn't happen you know there is a service that pharmacies can can, can offer and you know what there might be an overlap with uh, with the local GP practices that, that provide that and then it's you know w- which one is more effective at um, uh, uh, ch- championing their cause and, and, and getting the service commissioned from them um, so there's, lot, there's lots of factors at play, really, and so it's kind of hard. I mean, we all know we all know where we would like to see pharmacy go, and we know there's so much more that the sector can, can, can contribute, but ultimately it depends on how the paymasters decide they want.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I that that paymaster <laughs> thing is an interesting one because it, it comes down to economics, doesn't it? It's either the you know it's the the, the population economics of of Malthus or Bosrop, isn't it? So Bosrop, the I think she was Danish, um, and she said that necessity is the mother of invention. And then the flip side of that is the Malthusian sort of theory, where you know, if um, if there's too much population, you know, the the um, there are checks on the population, be it war or famine or drought or whatever. And the same the same could apply in in, in our little market. You know, I think. The trouble, the trouble and the benefit, the great sort of paradox of community pharmacy is that they've done really very well out of the NHS over the years. Um, you know, and so much, I, I would disagree with the, 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 the you slightly that that there's no option. I think private services and that side of the business is emerging more and more as the, as the large pair i.e. the NHS diminishes. The trouble is, to use my economic sort of analogy, we haven't reached that Bolsropian critical point where, nece- well, maybe people would, people would argue different, but where necessity um, is, is their mother of invention, really. And so there seems to be, I, I mean, I've been quite surprised that in England, more pharmacies haven't shut. So there's obviously quite a lot of equity in the market um and momentum so, they, 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 may, they evolve, may not have shut
1: but i imagine there's there's quite a few that are just hanging on just hanging on there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of pharmacies up for sale and uh it, it seems that there seem to be very few people willing to kind of kind of buy uh you know I, I i know i know you know kind of one pharmacy that's it's fantastically profitable it's just uh you know it's a it's a dispensing huge dispensing factory but you know it, 10 years ago it would have sold immediately now and now now kind of stuff just just drags on so
0: it's yeah i mean another another way to look at it is forget the nhs as a customer because that's what they are of community pharmacy we're contractors yes. so you know forget nhs why why are there not more start up community pharmacies just offering private services
1: Maybe because the revenue isn't there. Maybe because people aren't willing to pay for those services. Because we're still a nation that you know expects yeah. to be able to get uh, health services free at the point of care from the NHS. Mm-hmm. You know, but we're a nation that believes in free free healthcare. And does that stop us from embracing private services?
0: Don't know. It's it's just. I mean, I just asked the question because obviously the government are. You know, and especially in England, they're they're clearly asking that question, aren't they? They're they're yeah, are yeah, they they're are. asking what is the value here, and and actually behind the scenes, it looks like they don't think there is much value given how they're pulling the funding more or less, isn't it? I, I don't know. I think that's.
1: I'm not sure they they think there is no value because uh, maybe. You know when did the when did this four when did the four contract exemptions come out? It was probably about six, seven, eight years ago that they introduced mm-hmm. um, four automatic exemptions for those people that wanted a contract. And I I suspect what the government was hoping would be that it would drive drive innovation in um, in the supply of uh, pharmacy services. But it just you know I think I can't I don't know the exact number but there were an extra what two two three thousand pharmacies that opened and there were lots of hundred hours that have clustered together there are yeah. uh, there were quite a lot of you know mail order you didn't really see I think some of the automatic when the automatic exemptions was kind of a one-stop health center Did, didn't really see too many of those I don't think there were mostly 100 hour pharmacies and uh, a mail order and um, but that that didn't produce the big step forward. I imagine that those people that came up with that policy expected. And are they are they simply now looking to claw claw back those extra numbers rather than rather than say there's no value in the whole network, which I think is wrong. You know that's just that that just can't be correct.
0: Possibly, it's an interesting one. It's it, and I, it, I, it's hard not to get frustrated, isn't it? Because there's so much potential in the community pharmacy network. I think that's why I get annoyed when I have this conversation, and the conversation often becomes circular. To be honest, as it has done here, um, but it's just it's just sort of testament to my kind of enthusiasm for community. Really, yeah, I, I agree. We, you know, we often have.
1: Over the years we've had the same you know the same discussions and you come back to the sa- the same argument what, what's what's different what's what's different now to, to then so there are things that exist now that didn't exist you know ten years ago so there is a there is a very significant and a very rapid shift to EPS certainly in England there is a very rapid rise in uh, people using uh, uh, apps for for ordering you know you just have to log on to farm data there you know where you can where you can pretty much look at every pharmacy's um, uh, script numbers and EPS nomination numbers and you know, internet-based pharmacies are you know they're among the fastest growing businesses around so there's a level of automation that didn't exist before a level of slickness of automation that didn't exist before whether that's for using barcodes to track bags within the pharmacy whether that's you know hub and spoke dispensing models assembly robots collection robots like ours there's a level of automation of easy access to automation that didn't exist before
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there is a you know there are starting to see you starting to see developments in some of the you know pmr companies i know there's a there's a there's a new one uh, out at the moment um, i think it's infotech and, and titan i mean I'm, i haven't used it but looking at the information it looks like it's kind of been you know built from the ground up as uh, as more of a tool for um uh as more of a tool to enable pharmacy to do the sorts of things they, that they want and, and so there there the, the seem to be the drivers in place to drive more innovation now because you know that we couldn't do 10 years ago you know 10 years ago the the, the 10 15 years ago the, the biggest innovation was you know, you got a delivery van, but ultimately that didn't really allow you to change the way that you worked. It just took some of the the workload. Actually, it took some workload away from one area, but simply added it to another area. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, we are start. You know, I there there are there are kind of really slick internet pharmacies that are that are cropping up that are targeting certain cities. i you know I've seen online. They look really impressive. You know, you can. If you're if you work in if you know if you work in London there are pharmacies where you can uh, almost click and collect you uh, you you order your repeats go through to them via EPS and some courier delivers it to your office these sorts of models are starting to emerge and once you've once you have bought into that model you know what other service on top are you then kind of prepared to pay a bit extra for that's not provided by the NHS that the pharmacy might be selling privately I think I think things are going I think Things, things are going to change and we're also busy in the way that in, in our in our general work compared to how life was ten years ago so maybe there is a bit more of an incentive to to pay for stuff because it saves us the time so it means that our busy lives don't become even busier and overpowering
0: it seems a positive Positive spot to end it on, Gary. This has been really good. Give give yourself a plug there. How can people um, go and go and buy a Pharmaself machine?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, I, it, c- come come and talk to us. You, they can find us at uh, uh, Pharmaself twenty four uk. And um, we're, we're not, you know, Richard and I are pharmacists pharmacists by um, by training. You know, we're, we're not salespeople by heart, and we're happy to kind of just share some of the experiences some of our other customers and if it's right for you come and talk to some of our customers and see where you want to go and if not that's fine maybe you know see how things go we we we, re, we really we, we think we think there's an opportunity here to really uh, help pharmacists maybe change some of the workflow processes to free up time um uh to allow them to kind of think about doing other things and, and that's what we're looking to do you know um, and if we can if we can make uh some small positive changes for some people that, that that'll be that'll be a good result
0: brilliant cool thank you very much for coming on gary and um it's always a pleasure speaking to you and i'll uh, hopefully see you soon okay
1: thank you very much thanks jonathan
0: cheers buddy see you bye
1: bye